Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, explosions have rocked Equatorial Guinea. Is the government's history of corruption and misrule to blame? And Ghana's LGBTQ plus community has been under attack. How do we foster greater understanding and acceptance? Plus, we discuss the state of investigative journalism. Why are we in a golden age and how do we support this important work? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. On Sunday, March 7th, there was three huge blasts and a series of smaller explosions at a military base in Equatorial Guinea. It leveled much of the city, leaving at least 120 people dead and more than 600 injured. The barracks were home to hundreds of families. In the rubble, people tried to pull out survivors. Many are feared dead, including detainees trapped in the barracks prison cells. Hospitals quickly became overwhelmed and called for urgent blood donations. President Obiang, who had been in power for 42 years, said the explosion was an accident caused by negligent handling of dynamite. Khadija, OCCRP has reported on Equatorial Guinea a number of times. You may not have an opinion on the explosion. I don't expect you to know all the technical details of why it went off, but I know that you have some thoughts about the Obiang family and particularly how the president and his two sons, Theodore and Gabriel, have profited from decades of controlling the reins of power in the small country. I'd like a little bit to get your sense on, you know, what is the story of the Obiang family in Equatorial Guinea? Journalism, unlike policymaking, has the benefit of investigating the cracks, you know, between the truth and the law, between the idea of what a thing is and the reality. So with the explosion in Guinea comes the justification for an increased militarism and a militarization that speeds up the acquisition of arms and broadens and deepens surveillance. Countries in the Congo Basin like Gabon and Equatorial Guinea are constructed from the time of decolonization, we can see around very contained and enclave political economies. So it's a dictatorship to citizens by a family, but it is a long-term stable business relationship to the foreign oil companies that are involved. Oil is about 84% of fiscal revenue, 86% of exports, and a population of 1.3 million people live in a piss-poor state. They have no electricity. A lot of the times food is very expensive because it's imported from France. So you see that in this family-run dictatorship, there is a backer, it's just not the citizens. And it utilizes those familial ties, the dictatorship. So we see the explosion as another incident where there is a justification for militarism and a continuation of this deep state that represses a very small country that's almost peripheral to people's imagination and reality. And whatever the UN says, whatever the international scene of policymakers say, in reality, it's dictatorship born from foreign oil companies and those that have captured the sovereign state for decades. And that's as high and as low as it basically gets. I think you're absolutely right. And I do worry that they may use this as a pretext to go after opponents. There's been two other big military depot explosions in the past 20 years, one in Lagos in 2002 and another in Congo Brazzaville in 2012. In that second incident in Congo Brazzaville, President Sasu used that explosion first to scapegoat and then silence a former ally. And he had been a deputy intelligence chief. And I think it really bears watching in this case. 
I also would make the point, Khadija, that again, we don't know how and why this happened, but I have to think that a government that misrules its country as long as this one has, it just provides a higher risk of that things are going to go unnoticed and that the quality of the military bases and just general infrastructure may degrade. And I have a suspicion that these are linked and it sounds like you do as well. Absolutely. And a third point to add is that it also signals something to foreign partners. For example, in Congo Brazzaville in 2012, when the depot exploded, the president of Azerbaijan sent a very public letter from one dictator brother to another, effectively brothers in arms, where he said he's really sorry to hear about this. And that kind of opened the door. It silently signaled an opening of doors between the two countries for an implicit agreement that we later saw was realized. So that is, as you said, very old degraded systems. But also we see that in Eastern European countries and Russia, Africa is still a dumping ground for cheapened arms, for the restocking, refurbishing and resale of arms through the old Cold War factory of Russia, which was Ukraine, and through Russia itself. And sanctions don't actually stop that. Sanctions merely allow for a deepening of financial secrecy using secrecy jurisdictions, using banking secrecy. You know, even if an auditor at a Swiss bank wanted to tell the truth, the Banking Secrecy Act, I think of 1934, would put him in jail if he did. So the world has been legally coded and privileges wrongdoing in ways that these guys who run the UN Security Council, the world's biggest arms dealers, are also the judges that rule the world, that make the rules, you know, China, Russia, the United States. And these are the people who have made it technically legal to circumvent all the rules and to arm up resource rich regimes. Well, I definitely want to get back to the subject about secrecy in the final section. The other point that I want to talk about in the final section is about the use of satellite imagery. So both of these things we'll tackle, I think, in greater depth towards the end of the episode. But if you've been following uh, the explosion, you'll see that BBC and Reuters and CNN have used imagery to show the extent of the damage. And I think this is one of the things that's really interesting about what's happening in journalism right now. How do we access this overhead imagery to derive greater insights. And Peter, I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about how BBC Africa Eye uses imagery to sort of reveal and share and expose what's happening in these countries. So I can say the use of uh, satellite imagery are in a sense like open source has been one of the most exciting, uh, basically, evolutions in journalism during my lifetime. And this is because for two things, certain imagery can show you the scale of dramatic events like the explosion in Guinea. But also what is interesting sometimes as journalism, like it's really hard to get to the story like very quickly. And satellite imagery can help you and paint a picture of what's going on basically in the click of a finger. But also something that's really important and especially in very many countries in Africa, sometimes the governments, like if it's just physically journalists getting to the story can be very challenging could be because of the regimes also because of the time to get there or security issues so satellite imagery completely jumps all these hoops but also i think what is uh, interesting development satellite imagery but combined with open source and with the advancement of telephones in the hands of very many people so they've become this perfect marriage between the journalists and citizens and combining satellite but also the pictures and videos that people are taking journalists can paint a much more comprehensive image of what is happening without leaving their bedroom. So that's really exciting in a sense. 
Yeah, it's exciting. And I would argue that this is something that think tanks can do as well. So CSIS has published a number of really big exposés using satellite imagery. The Africa program hasn't done that yet, but stay tuned. We have a couple of things we're working through and hope to share soon. So let's move to our second topic, which is about LGBTQ in Ghana. In the last couple of weeks, there's been some new tax on the LGBTQ community. And this is only a few weeks after there was this opening of the first LGBT community center. There was protests, homophobic protests that really forced them to close their community center. They wanted to make sure that they could protect their staff and visitors. And then that was immediately followed by a group of lawmakers in Ghana calling for the criminalization of the promotion of gay rights. But we'll stay in Ghana for now, where authorities have shut down a newly opened information center for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and intersex people. The center in Accra, which was the first one of its kind and had only been running for a month, sparked waves of criticism in the country, with many now calling for broader anti-gay laws. And because you're here, Peter, I couldn't miss the opportunity to talk about your new documentary, I Am Samuel, which is about a gay man in Kenya. And I thought maybe we could hear a little about your film and perhaps if there's any insights that you could share about what's happening in Ghana. Thank you. So I'm Samuel is a very intimate personal story about the life of a gay man in Kenya. And it's a film that I filmed over five years and we attempt to try and show if you're gay and you're poor and also you come from a loving family who are in the rural areas, how do they deal with it? So it is a love story between Samuel and Alex, who's his partner, but also it's a love story between a father and a son and a father who's struggling to accept his son who is gay. And in that, it's also a film about resilience because in the city, someone lives in a slum and it's really difficult to keep a secret in a very crowded environment. So they are exposed to physical harm. And it's a story that shows how he navigates this space and manages to find this bubble of security in a very hostile environment. So, Peter, if drawing lessons from Samuel's experience, what would he tell this community in Ghana about how to manage both the political attacks on them, but also just the community attacks? Actually, the situation in Ghana, it's sort of similar to Kenya in terms of the tolerance with the society is very, very low. But as Samuel says, every story is valid. Like he's as Kenyan as I am. He's as Kenyan as any other person. And their story needs to be heard, but let alone that they need to have their space in their own country. They were born there. There's no other plan B. So I think for the LGBT community, what is important, and I think this journalism has a role to play, is create this space for constructive dialogue. Because sometimes we get lost in how toxic everything is and actually reason goes out the window. So I think that's the attempt my film tries to make. It's not demonizing people who disagree with LGBT rights, but it's just saying, listen, here there's a guy, he's Samuel, he's gay and he's Kenyan. And please, can you allow him to be your neighbor? Let him have the same equal rights as you do. And I think the more stories that journalists talk about it, this issue can really help have a constructive debate and hopefully make some baby steps going forward. I'm glad that you said that, Peter, because our listeners may recall that we recorded an episode in January 2020 called Finding Our Own Champions, 
which featured Neela Goshal, who's at Human Rights Watch, who I think you know, Peter, and then AFP reporter Ravi Kori Boulay, who wrote this fantastic book called Love Falls on Us. And we ended up having with Ravi and Neela this in-depth conversation about the plight of sexual minorities in Africa and how international advocacy groups and policymakers and journalists can provide support without increasing individuals' vulnerability to public and political attacks. So I recommend people listen to that after they get through this episode. So let's go to the final segment. And I want to spend the most time uh, on this because I'm really excited. I think that we are in a golden age of investigative journalism in Africa because of technology like satellites that we talked about with Peter earlier, because of the ability to access secrets as Khadija sort of hinted at, and then the ability to disseminate it widely. There has been just a series of incredible exposés coming out of the continent. And now we've talked before about the financial constraints that media houses face, but I want to make sure that we kind of talk about the other side right now and the innovation that we're seeing. And we have three organizations represented today that I think do some of the most incredible work, OCCRP, BBC African News, and Amabungane. And they are at the forefront of this new wave of African muckrakers, at least that's my opinion. So Michael, why don't we start off with you? Why don't you tell us about your organization, its mission, and maybe highlight a couple of the big stories that you guys have broke. We're best known for our investigative stories, and that's our sort of primary mandate is to produce cutting-edge investigations. But our broader mandate goes well beyond that, and it's really about developing a field of investigative journalism, developing best practice, methods, standards, that sort of thing. We work with a lot of partner investigative centers in neighboring countries, and we conduct collaborative investigations. And of late, our biggest effort to that end has been the creation of the Investigative Journalism Hub, which is an entity that has been sort of incubated by Amabungale. And the idea there is to basically continue what we've been doing in terms of investigation support in a more kind of formalized, institutionalized way. Funding is a very, very difficult exercise for most investigative centers in the region. I mean, it's a given that there are huge problems of resource scarcity and and a lack of access to funding, particularly in the region. But also donor priorities have a role to play there and in some ways can be very short-sighted and and perpetuate the perennial funding crises that the regional centers go through. But anyway, the idea of this IJ hub is to be the sort of center of excellence, to capacitate regional centers and leverage existing relations with institutional donors, pool resources, and provide these centers with the resources to do what they should be doing best, to do proper, long-form, thorough, deep dive investigations. Another important part of of what Amabungane does is advocacy. And it's really about creating a more enabling environment for investigative journalism. So it's not the kind of advocacy where, you know, we'll write a story about, say, a politician or a minister and ensure that that politician or minister is brought to book and the, the story sort of follows a prosecutorial path. It's about creating an enabling environment so that we can do what we do better So we just won a landmark victory in a constitutional court against our surveillance laws, the Regulation of Interception of Communications Act. It was a landmark thing in the sense that bulk surveillance, for instance, was declared unlawful. And these are the kind of big headline-grabbing things. But beyond that, we do a lot of much more rigorous kind of day-to-day advocacy work 
For instance, the advocacy coordinator will be scrutinizing bills before parliament with an eye to, well, how does this impact investigative journalism? Does this have any bearing on investigative journalism? And so the Electoral Laws Amendment Act, to cite an example, is something that one would think would have little, you know, it's, it's about electoral processes, will have little impact on investigative journalism. But buried in the act was a reference to the voters' role and privacy provisions. And we felt, no, we were uneasy with some of these provisions because it would mean greater secrecy. And we felt that there should be public access and public scrutiny of voters' roles because if elections are being manipulated, you're going to need that information. That's where you look. And so we highlighted this issue. Eventually, you know, we caught the ears of some influential people, some higher-ups in the institutions involved in crafting these pieces of legislation. So through that process, we basically won some quite important concessions there. These sorts of things don't really grab headlines, but they make a big difference in terms of the journalistic landscape and in terms of journalists being able to do their jobs. No, they're hugely, hugely important. And Micah, I, you mentioned the bulk surveillance. We'll make sure we do a link to the legislation that you exposed. But when I go onto your website, I see a lot of incredible work, particularly around state capture and what you've done to expose politicians involved in corruption. I don't know if those are some of the stories that you want to highlight, but we'd love to hear a little more granular examples of what the team has done. Sure. I mean, look, so so our kind of bullseye would be the intersection of big business, organized crime, corporate power, that sort of thing, where basically politics and big business and crime intersect. But it's not all just sort of high-level stuff. Of course, what we're most famous for of late has been the Gupta Leaks, which exposed high-level state capture. But we've also done stuff on the private sector. Media often gets criticized in South Africa for going easy on the private sector. It's a criticism that's in some ways justified, in some ways overstated. But we've done uh, exposés on, for instance, the Steinhoff scandal, the banks, in the latest case I can think of, Ned Bank's collaboration with corrupt politicians and politically connected businessmen. We've exposed various consulting agencies have been caught up in a state capture investigation. But also it's about social bottom-up stories. So we've done a lot of stuff on relatively more local corruption and abuse of power. I don't think it's fair really to rank stories in terms of most importance. You know, the Gupta leaks and our stories on state capture really grabbed headlines and they had sort of international reverberations. But, you know, sometimes it's those small localized stories, those stories that speak to people's lived experiences that can be really important, that really underscore the corrosiveness of, of corruption in South Africa. No, absolutely. And I think that you achieved what I wanted, which was the breadth and depth of Amabugande's work. So thank you. Let's turn to Khadija. And I mean, talking about the stories that OCCRP has broken in this year would take a whole episode, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the recent work that you've done on Azerbaijan's arms sales to Congo Brazzaville, which I think is fascinating because we've talked about sort of the corruption within Congo Brazzaville. But some of the work at CSIS that we often talk about is how Africa's partnerships are not just with China or Europe or with the U.S., but it sort of spans the globe. So I thought this story nicely puts together corruption, but also Africa's global reach. Do you want to talk a little about what you uncovered? Right. So OCCRP, like Amabungane, is also donor funded and there's a 50,000 percent rate of return vis-a-vis the amount of money that donors invest in it. But even where billions are recovered and you see thousands going to jail or being arrested, that doesn't necessarily change the anatomy 
of the country where the expose landed or for people who live on the front line of those countries. So that's something that as journalists, we're always conscious of. You can put the truth on the public record. You can write your story as a criminal docket and hope that the public as a jury condemns and indicts these people that you've written about. But you just cannot take it a step further to the legislative level because that requires other people. So with this Congo-Brazzaville arms story, the Congo is going to have elections in March. And we understood that and we wanted to talk about how arms dealing, which is something OCCRP covers all the time, and which houses, the arms sector houses more than 42% of the world's global corruption. And it's perhaps the only sector in the world that allows for offsets by the World Trade Organization. And what an offset is, is when a very big arms company or a government parastatal makes a big deal worth billions and billions on the order book for arms that may or may not be delivered. And that's where corrupt politicians often take a kickback, as well as inflating the cost of arms, adding refurbishments and so forth. So with this particular story, the point that we wanted to make is that unless one of the two countries are sanctioned, Trading arms between repressive regimes, between conflict regimes is largely a private affair. It's one of the world's biggest industries and it's arguably the one with the highest stakes because the product that's being handled is not milk, it's not soy, it's arms. And yet arms has less global regulation than either milk or soy. So in addition to the general secrecy in terms of order books and values and deliveries, you can see that Saudi Arabia was also involved in this deal. They were they are one of the world's leading importers of arms from the US and the UK, but they target African countries for sponsorship deals like they did in Congo Brazzaville because of the OPEC. The OPEC controls about 79.4% of the world's total oil volume that's traded. And by bringing in all of these oil producing dictatorships, they managed to artificially sustain not only the supply of oil, but the price of oil, which in turn funds all of these regimes who use that revenue to purchase arms, which in turn reproduces and sustains that type of dictatorship that's so present across oil producing countries in Africa. And basically it comes down to an NU certificate, which is an agreement between two countries, the import and the exporter, that you will use these arms for securitization and stability you will not re-gift it or resell it to another party. So the end use certificate in and of itself is a farce. And the ATT, UN ROCA, other global so-called regulatory systems are not mandatory. They have a system of peer pressure involved. But who's really going to pressure these governments into performing in the right way? Nobody. So basically, at the end of the day, you have the UN Security Council as the world's biggest arms dealers who keep that back door wide open to create wars, while at the front door, they ask for your name and your number as if it's a bakery and not a bullet factory. And they say, please, can you behave better? Please, can you not use these arms to murder your citizens? So arms dealing is one of the world's most corrupt industries. And we can see with Congo Brazzaville that it's an entirely private affair, like two neighbors just trading in sugar between each other. There's no one to hold them in check. There is no accountability and there are no consequences. This is something that the Biden administration claims that they are going to focus on. So I hope that those of our listeners who are interested in anti-corruption will take a look at some of the reports that OCRP has put out on corruption and arms sales and the nexus between them and then start thinking about what a different policy looked like. I want to turn now to Peter because BBC African Eye has done some really important stories that you've been a part of, the baby stealers and then imported for my body. And just like Khadija and Micah, it'd be great to hear a little bit about what those stories exposed and what it entailed to put them together. 
Okay, so to begin with, like as I say, like BBC News say has access to 132 million viewers across Africa. And one of the things that we wanted to do with that access is also to try to get stories that are much more closer to the people. And for baby stealers and imported for my body, like this is a story ideas that basically like did come from us, but came from people who were in the communities who were talking to us. Like, for example, in Baby Stealers, homeless mothers in Nairobi were telling us the children were missing and they had a few clues what was happening, but nobody had cracked the case, like who's doing it, why and how. So based on the complaints and working with local journalists, this story, Baby Stealers, we were exposing child trafficking in Nairobi and in three different levels. In a sense, homeless mothers, their babies being snatched from the streets and being sold on to other mothers who couldn't give birth. And also there was another ring where if you are especially young, like 16, 17, and you get pregnant, and there are these women who take advantage of these vulnerable young women and telling them, don't have an abortion, just come to me with a baby and leave it up to me. I will sort it out. And the third part of this investigation was exposing someone who was uh, working in the hospital, and he was a protection officer. And rather than protect, he was selling babies in the black market. So in a sense, it was showing the scale of child trafficking in Nairobi and the different skills. For the second film imported for my body, that was a film about a young woman who had been trafficked to India. And she was told initially that she's going to be a tour guide, do a bit of dancing. And when she got to Delhi, they took her passport and she was forced into sex work. At some point, almost at the end of paying off the debt, she got in touch with us and just said, this has happened to me and I would like to warn other women so that they don't fall in the same trap that I fell into. The unifying thing about these two films was they came to us, and I think that's the spirit of the film, like working very closely with the community, exposing the ills that are happening to them. That's really interesting. I mean, not only are these really important stories, but it says a lot about the trust that BBC has with its viewers, its listeners, its readers, that they would come to you to expose these stories. And it's a good way for us to pivot to a little bit into the how. Because I think that's one of the things that's very interesting right now about investigative journalism, and we previewed it, that there's this access to new technology or information that's allowing reporters to do this critical work. And I thought maybe Khadija, OCCRP is really becoming incredibly proficient at uncovering secrets, whether that's the Luanda leaks or the Paul Bia story about how president of Cameroon has spent how many years, almost four years of his total time in office traveling. And I think your journalists were able to look at plane flights and put it all together, piece it all together. So I thought maybe just a little bit on how is OCCRP getting uh, these breaking stories? What is the art of the investigative journalism? And perhaps maybe why is it possible to do it now that it may have not been so easy just maybe a decade ago? I think, you know, in the past few years, there's been a misconception that investigative journalists need leaks, really big leaks, in order to uncover big global stories. But as Micah and Peter can testify, almost every investigative story requires sources and evidence, and that can be framed as a leak on a micro or a macro scale. The real work comes in when you need to understand and contextualize the motive and verify the evidence before you construct an anatomy or a universe of how this evidence performs within that truth. So, for example, the story on Angola showed how Angolan elites led by the former vice president, Manuel Vicente, created their own private banking network 
to avoid having to go through as clients the know your client enhanced due diligence process. And they did this by developing a parent bank in Angola, developing a subsidiary or a partner bank in Portugal, which at that time was cash strapped, and then relying on shell and conduit banks in secrecy jurisdictions like Cape Verde. So they were able to launder money in a wholly contained system. The Bank of Portugal turned a blind eye because the liquidity that was coming into Portugal allowed for mass investment in Portugal's own state-owned infrastructure. So now the money launderers are not only the shareholders of these private banks, they are also investors in the Portuguese government. So as we always see, while lawmakers and policymakers are reacting to things, investigative journalists must look into the cracks of the law to see how a thing really operates between here and elsewhere, between the reality and the theory. And it put a close to the idea of cash and suitcases because now we see that these guys, the vice president of Angola, the former head of Sonangol, the oil company, are actually as sophisticated as bankers and accountants and lawyers who are the enablers and the intermediary. And that, I think, Judd, goes to your question, how does OCCRP come across these stories? We look at stories not as scoops and scandals, but as systemic issues. So we try to piece together over years and years different forms of data in the public domain, public land tax court appeals, evidence that has been put out into the open, as well as leaks. And we try to merge them together to build a picture of how the global legal and financial secrecy system operates. And within that, you find a lot of patterns and signifiers and identifiers. Even when these guys in Angola or in Cameroon are trying to disrupt an existing pattern to throw people off a trail, because of human behavior, they immediately construct a new pattern. And as long as a pattern exists, you can find them much more easily than law enforcement because they work within traditional silos. So we have the freedom to pursue the reality of how crime and, and corruption works, whereas our governments are sort of trapped within national borders that capital, whether it's a corporate corruption scheme or whether it's organized crime, Capital is not constrained within the boundaries that national governments are. And journalists like those criminals are able to move very quickly. So that, I think, is the upside of journalism. The downside, as I've mentioned before, is even with our Gambia projects and so forth, where asset recovery happens, very often that money is laundered back into the same type of systems where a new regime or a new minister or a new joint venture may steal that money that was just recovered. So there's very little accountability because the law doesn't change, even if the placeholders and the figureheads do. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I understood how forensic the work that you were doing is, but this point that you made about the ability to transcend international borders in a way governments and law enforcement can, I think is really important and should be foot stomped. It's incredible what you are able to do being an organization of journalists as opposed to an organization of law investigators, etc. Peter, I don't think you were involved in this report, but it's something that has stuck with me for, I guess, now five years. But BBC Africa I did this report on extrajudicial killings in Cameroon. I think it was called Cameroon Anatomy of a Killing. And what was just incredible is the way in which they used imagery and a whole bunch of data sources so they can identify where those killings happened, when it happened, and then who was responsible and then that ultimately forced the Cameroonian government to admit that this had happened and to, you know, at least initiate some proceedings against the human rights violators, the culprits. 
And I thought just uh, we talked about this in the first section, but as a documentarian, how do you leverage technology to deliver these insights? So this is something I'm really happy working with Africa Eye. They really embrace technology and open source. And uh, investigations like Anatomy of the Killing, that shows today that journalists can solve crimes and do entire investigations just with a laptop and an internet connection. It gives them access to freely available satellite imagery and other tools that are freely available online. And with this, combining with pictures that were taken at the ground and also videos, and also it's a converging that with a bit of science and also persistence, like combing through social media profiles. They managed the team that are doing anatomy of the killing, point out how the crime was done, who did it. And because of that, and it was beyond reasonable doubt, the soldiers that did these crimes had to be accountable to what happened. And anatomy of a killing was a really good example of how technology and especially open source can be used to answer some very difficult questions that are far away. This is the final question for everyone. And this is really about how donors and the international community can assist. Micah, you sort of previewed this in your comments. And actually, you did as well, Khadija, that donors help support the work that you do. And I know Micah, you are often in court on these cases. So maybe first, Micah, about what you look for from donors. How does your organization continue to do this good work? What can governments like the United States do to be helpful? And then Khadija, I'll have you expand that from OCCRP's perspective. In the region, in neighboring countries, I mean, places like Malawi or Zambia are awash with donors, and yet there's very little donor funding for investigative journalism for sort of core purposes. There's a lot of project funding. Priority tends to be with donors, tends to be sort of humanitarian or emergency, and money will be given to media organizations to deal with particular projects around those issues. So there'll be money for, say, a media organization to deal with awareness around cholera or or any given emergency. But not that much is earmarked for core funding, for actually building a sustainable media organization. And I think that was partly what informed the approach to the IJ hub, that sort of center of excellence that I spoke about earlier that Amukungane has tried to nurture. Thankfully, it's been a different story in South Africa. Abu Bungane sort of pioneered the nonprofit model in South Africa, and it's proven to be very sustainable. We've got a widespread of institutional donors who are quite happy to part with their money without there being any sort of editorial strings attached or anything like that. Not that we would ever make those kinds of compromises, but we don't have donors sort of breathing down our necks, demanding that we focus on particular projects or anything like that. They let us do what we do. Of course, there's all sorts of bureaucracy to jump through in terms of you know accounting for, for money spent and that type of thing. But they've been pretty good and reliable, pretty dependable. As I said, we have a spread of donors, so we're not too heavily reliant on a single donor which may compromise our independence or at least lead to that to, to the perception thereof. And so that's really been the heart of our sort of ability to fund ourselves, to sustain ourselves. You mentioned international governments. You mentioned the government of the United States, for instance. We wouldn't take money from governments. And I'm, when it comes to sort of what governments can do in order to foster a climate that's conducive for media on the continent, I would say... In that regards, you know, charity starts at home. And I'll, I'll give you an example of why I say this. Katija was speaking about uh, nefarious arms dealers just now. And 
the recent sort of big threat that we faced was a slap suit. That's a strategic litigation against public participation. It's basically a legal sort of mechanism used by the wealthy to silence and intimidate. We were reporting on an arms dealer, a South African arms dealer who lives in the UK. And he threatened to sue us because what we were exposing was, was a little too much for comfort. And he got riled up and sent his teams of legal pit bulls after us and threatened to sue us, but not sue us in South Africa. He wanted to sue us in the UK. And that is this sort of jurisdiction shopping is becoming a very sort of commonplace way for corporates and ultra wealthy individuals to silence critics. And UK defamation laws, UK laws are nowhere near as journalism friendly as South Africa. I think many people would be surprised to learn. And so, you know, when you ask what governments can do, what, what donor organizations abroad can do, some of them, probably some of the most productive things they could be doing would be to focus on these sorts of things, how their own governments, their own legal regimes, their own corporates, etc., are stifling media development and stifling the free press and democracy in places like South Africa. Micah, that's a hugely important recommendation. And again, since this podcast, often our audience is in the U.S. and with President Biden talking about fixing our democracy at home, I think your points hit right to the heart of the matter. Khadija, I'm just going to give you the final words. If there's anything that you want to add in terms of thinking about how do we support investigative journalism? Thank you. I think, you know, as Micah was saying, journalists consider threats and harassment, even death as part of the overhead. So it's a job where you have a price on your head. But in most countries outside of South Africa, journalists have no dignity, no protection, even within their communities and within their media houses. So Amabungane, for instance, is an institution in the country. Everyone admires and celebrates them because they are fundamental to our own freedoms. But if a media house in Zambia or Swaziland faces a slap suit because the UK courts, as he said, places the onus of defamation and it's a very, very expensive process, that media will fold. So slap suits are the equivalent of a bullet to a voter. At OCCRP, you know, the Africa team and the Africa network, we've been very lucky because we can determine what we want to cover. We are covered by US media law and we have an autonomy that's very, very rare. And that comes down to the vision of our bosses to not constrain us and to allow us to develop and capacitate the investigations and the systems that we feel are important. Even if as journalists, we are trying to get donors to protect us, who protects the sources and the whistleblowers? Only eight out of over 50 countries have any whistleblower protection. But even in those eight countries, including South Africa, those laws are contradicted by other existing laws or they are paper thin. And so when we are looking at the national and the global system, for example, the FATF politicizes and blacklists countries that are enemies such as North Korea and Iran, but the world's biggest suppliers of secrecy and the systems in place are never targeted. Or when we look at wildlife trafficking, every single country in the world will try to prosecute the person who killed the elephant, but nobody will follow the illegal proceeds of the wildlife trade that is a $2 trillion business model. Whether it's journalists or whistleblowers, governments are reacting and they have yet to formulate the laws that they need to protect the societies that they are supposed to govern. And whether it's arms or drugs or public procurement, it all comes down, in my view, to financial stagecraft, which is how crime and corruption is enabled. So it means ending legal and financial secrecy that's hypermobile or from commercialized sovereignties. 
If national governments implemented country-by-country reporting, automatic information exchange, protected disclosure laws, whistleblowers and sources would not be on the front line and journalists would not immediately be recriminated against for using that information because we wouldn't have to go through those darker channels. We could get that information that we need from the public domain. So it's not just about protecting the journalists. It's about strengthening the accountability so that we don't all have to be at risk in the way that we currently are. And we have to remember at the end of the day that less than 5% of assets that are prosecuted are actually recovered because the lawyers and the governments in place don't have the system that's needed to recover these assets. Everyone is locked within national borders, except for journalists, but journalists and whistleblowers are the most at risk. Khadija, let me thank you for those excellent recommendations and points and thank Peter and Micah for joining us today. This was a enriching episode, really important, and I'm just very privileged that we could talk today. We'll see everyone in two weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.